0: You
1: know, I really never saved that case either. I didn't look at it. How did the frog die? He
0: never
1: looked like He'd suicide.
0: he <laughs> committed suicide all the time. She don't get it.
1: I get it. (laughs) (laughs) The Lone Ranger woke to see his tent blown away by a tornado tornado. He declared, Tonto, we're not in canvas anymore. Oh
0: Oh,
1: they're so bad.
0: That's all that
1: makes them (laughs) funny. Okay. We have arrived at chapter 10 of Hebrews. I know. It's just taken, what, eight months? (laughs) (laughs) All right. Let's get over there. And uh, we'll probably be able to get through it. Notice I made a new background in Mm -hmm. there? Mm Mm-hmm. All right, Hebrews 10, we're going to start with verses 1 through 4. <clears throat> and this is one of my favorite topics because we really get into legalism versus faith, uh, which really, I mean, if you think about it, the whole book of Hebrews, the majority of the New Testament actually is uh, combating legalism. But it says in uh, verse 1, The old system of living under the law presented us with only a faint shadow or a crude outline of, of the reality of the wonderful blessings to come. Even with its steady stream of sacrifices offered year after year, there still was nothing that could make our hearts perfect before God. For if animal sacrifices could once and for all eliminate sin, they would have ceased to be offered and the worshippers would have clean consciences. Instead, one was not enough. So by the repetitive sacrifices year after year, the worshippers were continually reminded Of their sins with their hearts still impure, for what power does the blood of bulls and goats have to remove sins' guilt? And we started on it uh, last week as well. There are several things that are important in this uh, this passage. The first one is the law, which, if you look in the original language, it's the five books, the first five books of the Bible. Um, So it's referring to the Torah. In the uh, the Greek and it was a shadow of the reality to come. The reality to come was the Word in flesh. Right. So where the Father released the Word on tablets of stone there was an agreement between him and the pre-incarnate form of Jesus that Jesus would become a man. So the Word was in the beginning, the Word was God is God will always be God and so where the, the first covenant was a literal tablets and law given, the second covenant was God became man. Okay? And so that's the, the comparison. So when you think about it, the giving of the Torah was a picture of Jesus Christ. And yet people today make the law as something that you have to uh, fulfill, something that you have to follow, and all the washings and the foods and all that stuff But it was but a faint shadow notice he said faint the word shadow in the greek is a faint archetype which foreshadows a later reality it was supposed to be a glimpse into what was coming that one day blood would be shed that instead of reminding you of an impure heart guilt the punishment that's due you it would remove all the guilt of sin and then When I think, okay, so like if you, again, talk to many believers today, a lot of their decisions are done out of guilt. So even relationships, even uh, decisions in their personal lives, but especially in their relationship uh, to God. Jesus came to remove guilt. In fact, he not only declared us not guilty when we accept him, he took us to a state of innocence, right? Right? So, all of your decisions should be made out of a place of identity in God and relationship with God, not guilt. So, that's why, like, uh, I really don't think I do anything out of guilt. Of course, part of that could be I don't feel it very much. (laughs) But, uh, maybe in the young days I would do that, you know, say yes because I didn't want people mad at me or, you know, Mm -hmm. things like that. Now I really don't care. but. Guilt is not a good motivator because Jesus came to remove that from us. The only time you should feel guilt is if you do something wrong and Holy Spirit's like, hey, you you shouldn't have done that. And then you get it handled and then you're back into that place. Uh, Well, you actually never leave it. But your emotions, your soul can be restored back into a place of right relationship. So it's really important to live from that because that's what Jesus Christ died
0: for. Well, and I think, too, that you, Well, let's face it, we all have a limited amount of energy and attention, and if you're if you're diverting that and, and pleasing man, Yes. then it's hard to, you know, actually put your attention where it needs to be.
1: And if all of your energy and attention is going to uh, guilt, then when you get in God's presence, you don't feel Him. You can't connect with Him because it's like a wall of separations right there. And He doesn't like it. He doesn't like it. Um, He, again, if you do something wrong, He will tell you. Other than that, you just need to trust that you're His child. That'd be like, Kent, not be able to come to me because he did something wrong and he's acting all weird. You know what I'm going to think? I'm going to think I did something. Now, God doesn't think that way because He knows He hasn't ever committed any sin whatsoever. But it just causes this weird dynamic in the relationship and... That means that if a parent and a child are not connecting, then the parent is going to want to find out, okay, what's going on in the child to get that eliminated. But if the child keeps that separation there, the parent's helpless. The parent's powerless. There's nothing that that parent can do. Mm -hmm. It's the same thing with father.
0: Don't you think that that probably is the start of a lot of mental health issues? Absolutely.
1: And then I also think it's part of the reason why a lot of Christians remain immature. Because it is impossible for you to know who you are if you don't know who your father is. Absolutely impossible. You have to see him as he really is. And unfortunately, uh, religion and a lot of even sermons that are preached have preached a father that is not accurate. So a lot of people relate to him as an orphan versus a child. Or like we've always said, they think they're still sinners, which is not true. Because a sinner has a guilty conscience, right? It's saying right here. For what power does the blood of bulls and goats have to remove remove sin's guilt? And so this is a key strip- scripture.
0: Oh, <laughs> <laughs> strip it on down. <laughs>
1: scripture uh, for those that feel that they need to observe a shadow instead of the reality. Uh, I, you know, I'm very plain on that. If you think that you're supposed to follow the Torah and you're supposed to... you got even people that say they're Christian and want to sacrifice lambs. I mean, if I don't... I mean, I can't think of (laughs) a dumber thing you could do, actually, because (laughs) Jesus Christ was the lamb once and for all. So for you to think that you have to sacrifice a lamb in order to fulfill the law, then you're negating that the lamb who has come to save the world wasn't good enough, you might be going to hell. Maybe you should read Hebrews chapter 6, actually. To count the blood of Jesus as common is a big mistake. So people that feel that they have to follow the Torah, they have to do the Sabbath, and they have to do this and all of that stuff, they're adding to the new covenant something that Gentiles were never supposed to follow in the first place. That was never supposed to be on us. But you have entire groups of people who claim Jesus Christ that follow that stuff. And you know what I've noticed about those people? They're rude. They're condemning. They ain't nice at all. You know? You can't talk to them. Uh, You can't have fun. God forbid you you tell a joke. But you know what I mean? They're just sour-faced lemon suckers, you know? And they're not fun to be around. You know how you know that you know you're righteous? Here's a key. If you love righteousness and you hate unrighteousness, you are the most joyful person in the room. If you are living from a conscience free from guilt, you're the most joyful person in the room.
0: Well, it's the real peace. Well,
1: it's in Hebrews. It says, Jesus... Hated unrighteousness, but loved righteousness more than all of his companions. Therefore, he was anointed with the oil of joy. So all those lemon lemon sucker legalists, you know, if you're not joyful, if you're not happy, then maybe you should reevaluate how you're living. You never add to Jesus Christ. He is, it is finished. That's who he is. You never have to add the lot to following him. In fact, it causes you to fall from grace. And really it's a waste of time to observe a shadow versus a reality. Now I'm gonna read Colossians 2, 13 through 17 in the English Standard. I have like key revelations in my life, and this is one of them. When I read this, I was it was kind of like one of those, you know, moments where you're by yourself, you know, and you're all.
0: What? <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's
1: how it was. This is one of them. It says in verse 13 of Colossians chapter 2. And you who were made dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all of your trespasses. Okay, so all this can believe that. Then he says in verse 14 by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailed it to the cross. Verse 15 is key. He disarmed. The rulers and authorities, and put them to an open shame by tri- triumphing over them in Him. Now, we got to pause for a second before we read verses 16 and 17. How did He put them to an open shame? Y'all see that? This is so key. He put them to an open shame by canceling the record of debt and nailing it to the cross. Therefore, verse 16, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance is Jesus Christ. Okay, here's the revelation. This is what I want to get to. Rulers and authorities, so the demonic forces in the atmosphere, right? The power they had over man was the law. Once he took that and he nailed all of its requirements to the cross, he stripped them naked. That's what disarmed me. The only power the enemy has over you is if you come into agreement with his accusation. You have to believe that you're innocent. Again, if you did something wrong, all you have to do is agree with that. Father, you know, I treated that person rudely. I asked you forgive me and then you move on that's it he it, everything is taken care of we get into trouble when we start looking at everything that's wrong with us everything we've done wrong we start hearing all the accusations I did this I did that I treated them wrong I blah blah blah. all of this stuff occurs and what it does is it actually arms the enemy if you try to follow Jesus Christ by following the five books of the Bible, the Torah, then you have rearmed principalities and powers. Yeah. It goes back to 1 Corinthians 15, 56. The power of sin is the law. That word power is dunamis, or where we get the word dynamite. In the original language, it is the uh, supernatural power of God or the enemy he has supernatural power too right so when you start trying to follow the law and add it to Jesus you're actually putting the Lord to a shame you're rearming principles and powers and ironically the very thing you're trying to eliminate which is the consciousness of sin by keeping the law you actually amplify it and then you find yourself doing the very thing that you hate We know that because that is the life that Paul described as a Pharisee of Pharisees in Romans chapter 7. So following the law actually empowers sin. That's why it's so important to not do that. So when we look at this, we're seeing that all the legal demands, he got rid of it. He not only fulfilled the law, he hung on a tree because curse is the man who hangs on a tree. So he hung on a tree to take the curse for us. Then he took our punishment on the cross and then he was resurrected so that like any will is kicked into effect once the person is dead by his death he kicked into effect the covenant of jesus christ so we are free from rituals and sabbaths and meats and new moons and all of that stuff is is it plain i want it to be extremely plain because every It's almost like every time a person becomes a Christian, they think that they have to add the law. I did it. Everybody does it. Everybody does it. Because it makes you feel good. Yeah. Like or I was telling them. Based. It is performance, and we're used to performance. We're used to performing in school to get A's. We're used to per- performing for parents so we don't get in trouble. We're used to performing on our jobs so that we can keep our job. I mean, all of our life is basically performance. But there's one place where it's not, and that is with God. The only thing, there's only one thing that pleases them. Faith. Faith. It takes more faith to believe you're righteous now than not. Right. Right? Right. Because we know how we are. It takes more faith to know you're righteous than to not believe that you are. And the one thing that offends God is unbelief. I, I You know, when I did work with junctions. You know, and I'd work with addicts that were, you know, they didn't want to go back to addiction. And so I would sit with them in my office. I could see all kinds of great things, you know, beautiful people, strong people that went through terrible, terrible things. And they're still alive. A lot of people would have committed suicide. And I remember I would, you know, I would talk to them the things that I saw and they were blind, absolutely blind. And it would get so frustrating to try to tell someone, this is who you are, and they wouldn't hear it. And so that's, I think, how sometimes maybe the Lord feels is that he's trying to tell us who we are, and sometimes we don't believe him. And the first place is just to believe him what, in what he says about you. So don't rearm the enemy in your life. You don't need any of his interference by following the law. So Colossians uses the phrase, shadow of things to come as well, to refer to the Mosaic Law observance. In fact, Paul goes even further and lets us know that not only have we been forgiven because he canceled the record of debt against us with its legal demands, but he also disarmed the rulers and authorities. So the Torah very clearly was a shadow of the reality to come. So the word or the phrase to come in the Greek means to occur at a point of time in the future which is subsequent subsequent or comes after another event and is closely related to it. In other words, the coming of Jesus Christ as a perfect sacrifice and the only one who could not only fulfill all of the Law and the Prophets, but also take the punishment, is the after event to the Law. Okay, so you got the Law, Jesus Christ is the next uh, event after it. Why? Because the Law could not give us a new nature. Right. It couldn't. So the, the God had to become man. In fact, if you start trying to follow the law after you get a new nature, you'll start going backwards. Uh, in Galatians 5.4, it says you've fallen from grace. Going back to the law basically means grace is inoperative in your life. And that's one thing you don't want inoperative because grace is the inner work of the Holy Spirit that begins to manifest itself outwardly. It says that the law was a faint shadow of the true form of these realities. These realities are all the things that Paul has been discussing so far and the superiority of Jesus Christ and his covenant. The word uh, form here is icon. E-I-K-O-N, where we get the, the term "icon," I-C-O-N, in the Greek, and it means to be like, a representation, an image, or a likeness. However, it's also used with another word, and I've got it written there in your notes, They can refer to earthly copies and resemblances of archetype uh, things in the heavens. So here's what this means. The distinction is that an icon, there always has to be a prototype. You can't have an icon without a prototype. A prototype is the before type. What does this mean? The The tabernacle, the law the utensils, the priesthood, all of that had to have a prototype. So that's why Moses built all of that according to the pattern that was shown to him when he received the law. So all of that was an earthly representation of what was in God's mind. But here's the thing, how do you take what is spirit and make it earthly? You see what I mean? He had to translate spiritual realities into something that man could see, right, and interact with. Uh, There had to be an ark. There had to be the table of showbread and the, the incense of prayer and all of these things, even the outer court, the inner court, the most holy court, all of those things were a prophetic picture. So that's why you have, out of all of the woods... Why did he say for the post it has to be acacia wood? Why? Do you ever wonder that? It
0: was already <laughs> no, no, I not
1: Acacia wood represents the flesh because it's the most difficult to work with. Humanity, but then he covered it in gold, which gold is divinity, right? Right. Yeah. So. I mean, all of it, the type of material, the uh, colors that he used, everything was a picture of what he was going to do in Jesus Christ. That's why it's so crucial to interpret the old through the new. And that's why we spend so much time in the new, because then all of the old makes sense. Like, yeah, people, well, God, he's mean because in the Old Testament, he killed women and children and animals. Well, the reason that had to occur is because giants. Yeah. He had to get rid of tribes that had giants because they were uh, they weren't the full thing, right? They were hybrids. They were hybrids, and so there's so many things that if you don't have the Holy Spirit, you will interpret the word completely wrong and interpret His nature completely wrong. So there had to be a prototype. The prototype was Jesus Christ. So everything, everything was drawn from a source, which is why the law is holy, but it could make us holy. We had to have a new nature. It's that simple. So all these things prophesied of Jesus Christ, but unlike Jesus, none of them could remove the guilt of sin because of the sin nature, no matter how many sacrifices were offered or laws kept. And remember, perfect means perfect in a moral sense. We learned that last week. Now, also, don't miss what he's, Paul said in verses 2 through 3. He said, if animal sacrifices could once and for all eliminate sin, there would have been no need for it, right? right. So, it, he says that. But also, he says, and if that was the case, then it would have removed um, the you know, guilt of sin or given us a clean conscience. Dead works are anything that's done not in faith.
0: I think we really need to remember that the, really the first converts uh, in Mass mm-hmm. uh, after Jesus died with the priest. Mm-hmm. They understood the symbolism of the veil being rent mm-hmm. and some of the other things that had happened right? because of their background and stuff. They understood it. And now we're trying to go back it's to crazy. what they left. Well, basically. and
1: it started not long after the Lord. You know, like, I mean, Hebrews is written to combat that, to the Hebrews, right? Uh, Galatians was written to that region because Mm -hmm. the Judaizers, I mean, from the start, there was a, a method that was executed to try to get Christians connected to the law. In fact, Paul standing up to it and Peter standing up to it is what saved us from just being an addition to the Jewish sect of legalism. If it wasn't for them saying no... You're not going to put that on the Gentiles. We wouldn't have what we have today. And so from the very beginning, not even 50 years later, that's what was coming in. Why? Because when Adam and Eve ate from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, it made performance-based living and legalism and religious thought, which is a form without power and routine without relationship, right? That's what religion is. It made it comfortable and normal. And so we've been trained in our soul to live that way. And that's why a lot of times after we're born again, you know, like I knew I was going to hell. I just need someone to help me not go there. <laughs> so get born again, get spirit-filled, and it's like the soul wants to go back to what is, what is, well, feels that's normal, that's but also it's an ego that. thing.
0: I was thinking that. You know, if you have 5,000 priests that leave, then their whole identity is gone. Oh, yeah. It's yeah. stripped. Yeah. And they are floating around out there without an oar, basically, because yep. everything that they had put their whole life on, their whole, uh, well, that whole tribe yep. of Levi, their whole identity was based on the law. hmm. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, that's cut out from under you, and you are, you know. Which is why Paul said he counted yeah. that all of that is rubbish. Right.
1: Because he was high up. Right. He was high up
0: and uh he gave it all up but you can kind of understand they were just like okay now what do we do now what do we gotta do yeah what does that look like i mean it
1: took them about 20 something years to figure that out in the early church okay so the sacrifices could not give us a clean conscience and you notice that paul used the word worshiper what is a father seeking seeking those who worship in spirit and truth if you want to worship him Him in spirit and truth, you cannot have a guilty conscience. It won't happen because the guilty conscience is in the soul. So whatever you focus on, that's how you live, right? So if you try to worship him with a guilty conscience, you won't be able to do it. So that's why Jesus' blood gets that out of the way so that you can come to Father with a boldness, not worried that he's going to squish you or punish you <laughs> or any of that stuff. He'll handle his business if he needs to. But I think sometimes we add to things that aren't even a problem. So Christ's sacrifice eliminates sin. What does that mean for us? Well, in the English Standard Version of Hebrews 10, 1 through 4, it's translated that He eliminates sin or any consciousness of sins. Adam and Eve did not have a consciousness of sin until they ate from the tree. Okay? So, if you think about the Lord and that he's the last Adam that's a very interesting title so you have the first Adam you have the last Adam why is he called the last Adam because he came to restore the pre-fallen state the pre-fallen state is there's no separation between you and God you don't have to live in a consciousness of sin you live in a consciousness of God it's that simple you're always aware of him you know, like even when you're you're doing stuff that maybe doesn't seem like it goes with them. Like when we do our uh, true crime podcast, God's he's on my mind, constant. Sometimes I might say a, a little word and have to you know, sorry Lord, because you know, when you study these people just uh you know, so sometimes I have to do that. Um, but it, it is he. I'm always thinking of that of him, and so that's what it is to live like that. But you know another thing when you know, you get restored to the pre-fallen state in Jesus Christ, of course your body, that will be restored at the resurrection. But they didn't have poverty. They didn't have division in the relationships with one another. They didn't have pain in childbirth. You've all heard me tell the story of Sydney, Two babies, no labor whatsoever. I mean, all of those things were restored, and yet we live as if we're still in a fallen state. Does it make sense? And a lot of that's because of stuff that's been preached from the pulpit, which makes me irritated. It would make so much more sense if we would preach identity and redemption realities. If that was the case, we wouldn't have as many Christians still messed up. So Jesus came to restore us back to a state of no consciousness of sin. Well, then people are like, "Whoa! does that mean that you're not ever tempted? Are you saying you're sinless? Well, positionally, Yes. However, we don't live in a fake reality. We understand that we're still tempted at times. So is Jesus. It didn't make him a sinner. Right. A lot of people equate being tempted to sin with sinning. No. Because, again, it says that he was tempted in all points just like us, yet without sin. Right? He
0: yeah, didn't act on it. He didn't yeah, act it on it. a crime before it's called a crime
1: right so being tempted to sin here's the way i look at it you know those you know like arrows that point you in a certain direction like sometimes when i'm tempted to sin it's so ridiculous i laugh but other times i'm like you know that might have hit a little too close to home that's a sign to me i like i flip it around huh okay so the fact that you tempted me in that means that that may be something that I need to pray about and get some word on right and and, and shut that door because we know in the Amplified Bible when the enemy came and he says evident by the divine essence in you that you are the Son of God right in the uh, Luke chapter 4 and the Weiss translation it brings that out the enemy knew he was the Son of God he then tempts him three times and in the Amplified it says that the enemy then stood afar off, waiting for a more opportune time to tempt them again. What are those op- opportune times? Just hit me with a couple. Uh,
0: when, you're, when you're weak,
1: tired. tired, weak, like physically or yeah, mentally. What else?
0: Well, bad company.
1: Uh, bad company. <laughs> Hungry. Uh, that's why I snack, you know. So. What else? Angry. Angry? Yeah. Yeah. So he always, if you're sick, if you're weak, if you're going through something, if you hear bad news, whatever it is, you like the Lord when he heard about his cousin, John, you know, he wanted to mourn. He wanted to get away from the crowds so he could process the fact that his family member died. Uh, But he couldn't because all the crowds were coming at him. You know the enemy was throwing everything he had at him. You know what I mean? The night he swept blood, you know. Because the Lord, I think what really impacted him that night where because there it is a medical condition where you can be so stressed that your capillaries burst, and I don't think he was stressed and like oh I'm so stressed. I think he was the the battle on the inside, and here's what I think the battle was. You know, they had in Jewish tradition four cups. And the third cup, if I'm not mistaken, was the one he had a drink out of. And that was a cup of suffering. I don't think it was the suffering that bothered him. What I think it was, was being divided from his father for the first time in his life. He'd never been separated from the father. He'd never been separated. So the thought that he was going to to be separated, I think, really weighed heavily on him and then we know there was a lot of warfare going on that night because, you know, sometimes when you get hit with a lot of stuff, you want to sleep, right? And his disciples kept falling asleep.
0: Yeah.
1: And he'd go to them, and, you know.
0: And, and then he
1: said something very interesting for those that like to escape. He said, you need to watch and pray so that you're not tempted. Right. And that's what he was doing Because if he had not, the Lord did not win the battle on the cross. The Lord won the battle in the garden. The battle was lost in the garden with Adam and Eve. Right? So by the time he won the battle in the garden, everything else was just etc. He was able to do it. You know, the movie The Passion, very difficult movie to watch, but my favorite part is when his mom goes running up to him because he fell, remember, because the cross. And he hugged it. He hugged the cross. He said, this is why I came. You know, I'm going to make all things new. And that gets me every time. He wouldn't have been able to do that. He wouldn't have been able to have that, except for the joy set before him. What's his joy? It was us. It was removing the consciousness of sin, so once again, there was nothing between us worshiping Him, interacting with Him, laughing with Him face to face. That's what He wanted, right? So that's why I get so mad at religious preachers and teachers and stuff that get up there and say, you're still a sinner, and you're going to do this, and you're blah, 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 blah. I'd like to throw punch them, which is probably a temptation, and I won't <laughs> act on it, but still. So Jesus came to restore us back to a state of no consciousness of sin. But we can sometimes still be tempted to sin. The degree that we're susceptible to sin is the degree that our soul has not been renewed. Okay? So wherever your soul is not renewed by the word, that's where you can be susceptible to it and any lack of progress in our transformation. That's Romans 12, 2, by the way. All right, I'm gonna read you the Passion Translation of 1 John 1:8 uh, through 2:1. If we boast that we have no sin, we're only fooling ourselves and are strangers to the truth. But if we freely admit our sins when his light uncovers them, light is revelation, revelation is light. That's where Holy Spirit shines a light on something He doesn't like. Get this, it says, He will be faithful to forgive us every time. God is just to forgive us in our sins because of Christ. And He will continue to cleanse us from all unrighteousness when we sin. If we claim that we're not guilty of sin when God, when God uncovers it with His light. See, that's so important because again, Christians live with a sin consciousness all the time. What he's saying is, if we claim that we're not guilty when God says, hey, you just committed that, I don't like it. If we say, no, 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 I don't want to hear or whatever, we push away his conviction, then we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Guess what else is like? The word. You can be reading the word and you're like, ooh, Oh, I didn't know that he didn't like that. Oh, I better quit doing that. (laughs) You know what I mean? Because repentance isn't necessarily an emotional exercise. Repent literally means to return to the lofty position. That's why you call them penthouses. It's to return to lofty thought. It's in the mind. So all of a sudden you realize, well, that doesn't please him. So you change your mind to agree with his. Once you agree with his, That's it. That's all that needs to be done. But when he comes to you and says something and then you refuse to listen, now you're going to be in trouble. You are my dear children, and I write these things to you so that you won't sin. But if anyone does sin, notice he said if, not when, we continually have a forgiving Redeemer who is face-to-face with the Father, Jesus Christ, the Righteous One. It fascinates me that he says, I write these things to you so you don't sin. That's fascinating. Because most preachers probably have never read this scripture that way. Because usually, in a typical church setting, they think that you are going to sin. Now the word sin, get this, this is very interesting. It's, quote, the moral consequence of having sinned, a.k.a. guilt. Isn't that interesting? The moral consequence of having sinned, Guilt. Now, is this referring to past sin? It can't because Jesus Christ has already cleansed us from all past sin. So, whatever sin you have with relationships or your mouth or your body or your mind or whatever it is, once you're born again, all of that's erased. So, to keep bringing it up and rehashing it and things like that, that's not good. Now, sometimes your soul is wounded and you have to get healed from things, but to beat yourself up over past sins after you've been born again is really a waste of time. So, the death of Jesus makes us clean from all sin and from the guilt. Now, anything after present tense sin, we disagree with Him and He'll cleanse us. Now, I like how scholars put sin. This is a very interesting thing I, I quoted from one of my resources. There are sins of ignorance and omission that we might not even be aware that we're doing. But as we continue living in unbroken fellowship with him, because I mean that the passage we in this passage refers to fellowship between God and us, he constantly, constantly cleanses those sins from us. I believe the reality is if we live in his light, not in darkness, which speaks of habitual sin, his light reveals those sins of ignorance and omission leading to our agreement with his assessment, and then he cleanses us. This is very different from habitual sin. So the other sin that they talked about, so you got the sin of ignorance and omission, the other sin is habitual. You know that you know you should stop doing what you're doing, and you don't want to, and you're not going to. We have an instance of that here in this town recently, right? You know sexual perversion is a sin, and yet you do it anyway. And you think you'll get away with it. That's why people murder. That's why people still, they think they can get away with it, right? But you always get caught, either here or later. Now, we can't ignore the motive of John to write these things because he said, I'm writing them to you so you don't sin. Now, back to our idea of pre-fall, right, consciousness of sin. We can see from these scriptures that living outside of a consciousness of sin was Jesus' plan from the beginning. He didn't want us trying to love Him and have fellowship with, with Him in a consciousness of sin and feelings of unworthiness because that's what separates us from Him. Now let's go down in 1 John in the Passion Translation to three nineteen through 22. It says, We know that the truth lives in us because we demonstrate... Get this, love in action. Love is always in action. Remember, the word agape is a noun, and it's a verb in the the Greek, which will reassure our hearts in his presence. Whenever our hearts make us feel guilty and remind us of our failures, we know that God is much greater and more merciful than our conscience, and he knows there is everything to know about us. Did y'all get that? the heart makes us feel guilty and reminds us of our failures. Well, I thought God did that. Nope. And he ever? We're going to get to this in a few weeks, but you know Sarah, pre-incarnate, the you know, Lord shows up. He's on his way to Sodom and Gomorrah, you know, to handle his business. And Abraham sees him with his two angelic messengers, you know, and he's like, hey, Y'all need to come in and eat. And he knew who it was. He called him Lord, which was, if I'm not mistaken, all caps, Yahweh. And so the Lord comes in there, you know. And the Lord's like, hey, where's Sarah? Ah, she's, you know, fixing our food. Well, this time next year, I'm going to visit her, and she's going to be pregnant. Sarah's in the kitchen. (laughs) On the inside, right? Just or or
0: maybe not on the inside. Maybe I think it was, on the was in the inside,
1: <laughs> and she laughed in her heart. So then the Lord's like, "Why'd you just laugh?" I didn't laugh. Mm. Yes, you did. <laughs> You're gonna have a kid next year. Well, now she technically didn't like. She didn't laugh out out loud. <laughs> she didn't LOL. But he knew she laughed in her heart. Sure enough, she took that word. It shows that she took that word, and her body was renewed to carry a baby. Do you know that in Hebrews chapter 11 it says Sarah by faith conceived a woman of faith? Like it talks about her like she actually believed when he said it the first time. It's like the story's been been rewritten because it was. Because all their past failures, Abraham lying twice, Sarah laughing because she didn't believe God, David murdering a dude so he could have his wife, I mean, the list goes on and on. None of that is filtered from the Old Testament into the New. So when you look at the chapter of faith in chapter 11, you're like, God, are you lying? You're like, we know Sarah did not believe. You know, hes It's impossible for him to lie. Their story went through the cross, and guess what? Through the cross, there is no consciousness of sin. There is no reminder of your failures. If you're being reminded of your failures, it is your heart doing it, not God. That could free a lot of people. People that have been divorced, people that have aborted their babies, people that have been molested, people that have done bad things, maybe have molested others. All of those things, if you're born again, no longer exist. But your heart will try to tell you that they do. My delightfully loved friends, verse 21, when our hearts don't condemn us, we have a bold freedom to speak face-to-face with God. And whatever we ask of him, we, re- we receive because we keep his commands. Remember, his commands are two. Love him and love yourself and your neighbor as yourself. And by our beautiful intentions, we continue to do what brings pleasure to him. So John 14 tells us that those that love him do what he says. This is what he's reiterating right here, okay? He's saying that we know that the truth lives within us because we demonstrate love in action. That's how you know you love God. You do what He says. That's it. It may not be an emotional response. You may not feel that. You may not feel that connection even when you're in your prayer. But I can tell you the way I know that I love God is because I do what He says. It doesn't matter what He asks me. I'm going to do it. And by the way, Psalm 170... I think it's Psalm 178... Let me get there. Wait, there is no Psalm one seventy-eight, one twenty-eight. Up oh, one, yeah, one twenty-eight. It says, "How joyous are those who love the Lord and bow low before Him, ready to obey Him." So you got joy, right? If you love Him, you have joy. Number two, your your reward will be prosperity, happiness, and well-being. Your wife will bless your heart. I know, I do that. You're greatly loved. Children. <laughs> your children will bring you joy as they gather around your table. Huh? Like if you if you love God and you know you're loved by Him, these are the things in your life. Isn't that amazing? Yes, this is God's generous reward for those who love Him. Faith pleases Him. We must believe that He exists and that He is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. If we're diligently seeking Him, so, evidence that you're loved by the Lord is your children around you. You're welcome. (laughs) (laughs) And you need to tell Stephen you're welcome. (laughs) Okay. This is how you reassure your heart in His presence when it tries to make you feel guilty, because you have love in action. God is much more great and merciful than our conscience. conscience. Your conscience will try to condemn you even when God is not. And that's because we have to have our soul renewed. Now let's look at verses 4 and 6 in the of 1 John chapter 3. Anyone who indulges in sin lives in moral anarchy, for the defini- definition of sin is breaking God's law. And you know with what, without a doubt that Jesus was revealed to eradicate sins. And there is no sin in him. Where did he have to eradicate sin? In us. That's what he came to do. And yet, again, it just is so aggravating. You have preachers telling people they're still sinners. They're liars. I'm here to tell you. They're liars. And they may not realize they're lying, but they're lying. And they probably still think they are Mm -hmm. as well. And there is no sin in him anyone who continues to live in union with him will not sin but the one who continues sinning hasn't seen him with discernment or known him
0: by intimate experience that's the key well and the ones your example all ago if you are living like you're not supposed to you want to think that everybody else is too yeah that you are not the uh, lone sinner out there. You want to believe that. everybody else is doing the same stuff. Exactly. So it, you know, it lightens your own condemnation of yourself.
1: Right. Well, and, and let me give you a couple uh, clarifications. John defined the definition of sin as breaking God's law, right? Okay. Another definition is practicing lawlessness. That's very different from sins of ignorance, and omission. You see what I mean? So there are those that are practicing. Practice makes perfect. The Aramaic here where it says that uh, if we have union with him, we will not sin, it means never serve sin. So does it mean we're going to be tempted? Yes. Does it mean that sometimes we'll sin? Yes. But what it means is we won't serve it, we won't get hooked into pornography, we won't get hooked into drug addiction, Okay, so there's a difference. Are y'all seeing the difference? Because there are Christians out there that are in all kinds of sin that they shouldn't be in. You know, I understand that. But what he's saying is if you, when you see God as he really is, you know, really one of my prime motivators of not wanting uh, to do bad things, like, you know, punch people when I get mad and stuff like that, Mm -hmm. is I love him more. I love him more. I don't want him, I don't want him to feel any way other than joy when he sees me. Right? It's very important. Verses 7 through 8: Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. The works of the devil are sin. So it's between practice and not practicing. Like, if you look at like serial killers, they practice their craft. And they get better and better and better. But eventually the sin catches up and they can't hide it anymore and they get caught. It's the same thing with sinners. If you keep practicing sin, eventually you're going to get
0: exposed. I think it's, it's people compartmentalize their sin. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, oh That's just, I'm putting it in this little pigeonhole. Yep. But after a while, he gets out of this little hole and Sin
1: always grows. It's like a cancer. It starts eating all those areas of your life. Yeah. You know, like, remember, you know, my scrapbook of Snookles, right? <laughs> I mean, I had to do that because the way people were acting, it was consuming me. I was starting to get very, very angry at these people. So I had to have a strategy to get out of it, right? That's the thing. Sin always grows. It always gets bigger than you. And eventually, all of a sudden, someone turns on the light and everything's exposed. You can either stop what you're doing and confess it to people and get help, or eventually you will get exposed and you may even end up in the wrong place. So Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil, which is the practice of lawlessness. Therefore, anyone who practices lawlessness or sin is of the devil. It's that simple. But I love how the passage says that the people that practice sin, okay, have not seen him with discernment or known him with intimate experience. Okay. Why? They have ideas of God that aren't real. Some see him as Santa Claus. Some see him as a judge. Some think that he's like them, right? The way you see him is by being in the word. You can even have people that are paid to preach the word that never see God.
0: Isn't that interesting?
1: Romans 6.6 6 in the Passion. Could it be any clearer that our former identity is now and forever deprived of its power? For you were co-crucified with him to dismantle the stronghold of sin within us so that we would not continue to live one moment longer submitted to sin's power. That word former identity is translated in the Aramaic our old son of Adam. Could it be any clearer that our old son of Adam is now and forever deprived of its power? Isn't that interesting? So I well when I taught on Romans, I don't know if you guys remember, if you take a car... It's been wrecked, right? And you take it to the... Where do they take wrecked cars?
0: Body shops.
1: No, it's beyond repair.
0: Wrecking Yard. Wrecking Yard.
1: And then they strip all the valuable pieces off, right? right. And then they put it in this machine that makes it this little cube. Right. Do you think you would ever be able to salvage that car? No. <laughs> and yet people try to do that all the time with their old nature. Mm-hmm. That's literally what it means. Who you were before you were saved was literally all the parts, like your personality, you know, your beauty, your all the good things, he salvaged. But everything else, he put in that little machine and squished it. So there's no way for you to salvage it ever again. And yet most people preach that you're fighting dual natures. You're fighting your old nature, and now you've got a new nature. And they teach you to manage sin instead of believe that it is eliminated.
0: I had an incident like that. Mm I was trying to correct something. So my niece called my niece, and then they text me. Which was not a nice text. I read it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It took me 24 hours to think about it. (laughs) To answer them. So
1: I answered them. I said what I said, but not that way. But I still love you. And they sent another text. I still love you. And they sent another text. text.
0: No matter what you say, I still love you, and I still love you, right? Mm -hmm. stop it. I said, I still love you. I killed
1: him with love. Well, that, I mean, if you think about it, that's what Jesus did. He killed us with his love, so we can be resurrected. You know? And am I almost done? Any more pages? Golly. Oh, okay, well, let's... let's <laughs> man, I'm like even wondering. Okay. <clears throat> Romans 6, 11 through 14. Because there's a lot of Scripture. I wanted to give you all a lot of Scripture. If you ever you know, try to approach Him and you have guilt of sin, just get this out. Just read these Scriptures. It'll help you get rid of that. You know what I mean? So in Romans it says, So let it be the same way with you. Since you're now joined with Him, you must continually view yourselves as dead and unresponsive to sin's appeal, while living daily for God's pleasure in union with Jesus the Anointed One. Sin is a dethroned monarch, so you must no longer give it an opportunity to rule over your life, controlling how you live and compelling you to obey its desires and cravings. So then refuse its call. When it texts you, when it calls you, don't answer to surrender your body as a tool for wickedness. Instead, passionately answer God's call to keep yielding your body to him, as one who has now experienced resurrection life. You live now for his pleasure, ready to be used for his noble purpose. Remember this, sin will not conquer you, for God already has. You're not governed by law, but you're governed by the reign of the grace of God. Okay, so here it is summed up. You are free from the consciousness of sin like Adam was before he fell, but you can still be tempted. However, the more you walk in light, which is discernment of who he is and knowing him by intimate experience, the less power temptation will have over you. The stronghold of sin has been dismantled. Now, where the sacrifices that were offered year after year reminded them of their sins, their hearts were still impure, God doesn't do that. He never tells you you're still a sinner. He never does that. But he will shed light and alert you to sin so it can be cleansed. Okay? Now, let's just finish up reading uh, Hebrews 5 through 10, because I don't have much really to add, because it's pretty self-explanatory. So when Jesus the Messiah came into the world, he said, Since your ultimate desire, because he's speaking to Father, was not another animal sacrifice, you've clothed me with a body that I might offer myself instead. Multiple burnt offerings and sin offerings cannot satisfy your justice. So I said to you, God, I will be the one to go and do your will to fulfill all that is written of me in your word. For he said, multiple burnt offerings and sin offerings cannot satisfy your justice, even though the law required them to be offered. His justice was to make us right. That's what he wanted to do. That was justice for him because we didn't ask to be born sinners. And then he said, God, I will be the one to go into your will. So by being the sacrifice that removes sin, he abolishes animal sacrifices and replaces that entire system with a new covenant. By God's will, we have been purified and made holy once and for all with the sacrifice of the body of Jesus the Messiah. Remember, he was talking to Jewish people who wanted to go back to the law because of persecution. But don't miss this phrase. Quote, by God's will, we have been purified and made holy once and for all. See, a lot of people don't believe that. They think you'll be made holy when you're resurrected or when you die. No, we've been made holy once and for all. Yet every day priests still serve, richly offering the same sacrifices again and again, sacrifices that can never take away sin's guilt. But when this priest had offered the one supreme sacrifice for sin for all time, he sat down on the throne at the right hand of God, waiting until all his whispering enemies... subdued and turned into his footstool and by one perfect sacrifice he made us perfectly holy and complete for all time again twice paul saying
0: you're
1: "You're already holy see that is so important now at the time of this letter sacrifices were were still occurring of course that's not happening anymore but did you notice that at the end did y'all see that little tidbit Verse thirteen, waiting. He's waiting until all his whispering enemies are subdued and turn into his footstool. Who's going to do that?
0: Yeah,
1: it's mm-hmm. us, right? He's waiting on us. Oh, well, I'm just waiting on God. You. Someday He'll come. <laughs>
0: Will all be gone? He's waiting at This
1: hell's gonna, or this world's gonna to go to hell in a handbasket. You want know, the Antichrist and everybody? That's the Yeah. You know, no, actually, we're going to be making. We're victorious. We're going to be making his enemies his, his footstool. That's what he's waiting for. And that's also in First Corinthians chapter fifteen, if you really want to dive into it. Psalm one ten, it says the Lord Yahweh said to my lord, I believe that might be Adonai there. I'm not sure. Set at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. In verse 4, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of, order of Melchizedek. 15 through 18, the Holy Spirit confirms this to, uh, to us by the scripture, for the Lord says, afterwards, I will give them a covenant. I will embed my laws into their hearts and fasten my words to their thoughts. And then he says, I will not ever again remember their sins and lawless deeds. So if our sins have been forgiven and forgotten, why would we need ever need to offer another sacrifice hmm. for sin? Yeah, so that pretty much sealed it up. And I hope the Hebrews listened to them. Uh, now, I quickly want to address the phrase, I will embed my laws into their hearts. Um, so we've already studied the two greatest commandments, right? right? Love God, love others like ourselves. Upon this hang the law and the prophets, which means to hang on the cross. So Jesus, who is love, hung on a cross and fulfilled the law and the prophets, therefore we have two commandments. The word laws here can refer to the Torah as well as laws relating to the hearts and conduct of men. But I don't want you to get confused with that. You know what I mean? He's not saying again that we have to go back to the law because again, the law is fulfilled in those two commandments and in Jesus Christ. If you love God, and you love others as yourself, you won't You won't steal from them. You won't t- mistreat them and stuff. You know, a lot of people mistreat others because they don't love themselves. Mm-hmm. That's what's going on. And uh, anyway, man, that just seemed, how many pages was that? Hey. Maybe, that, maybe it was like a part <laughs> one and two. Good grief, my apologies. <laughs> Golly, I was even getting tired of hearing myself, you know? All right, well, let's pray and take up our our tithes and offerings. Father, we thank you so much for Jesus Christ, who is the Word, become flesh for us. We thank you, Father, that you weren't uh, just waiting uh, for the time where you could judge us and condemn us and destroy us. No, you were waiting for the perfect conditions so that Jesus could become the Word, a baby in a manger who was tempted in all points like us, never sinned, died for us, took the punishment, and is now, right now, seated at the right hand of you. And not only that, but you gave us his nature, you gave us his Holy Spirit, you've given us all the promises of God, so that we can look the most like him before we die. We thank you for that. That was your idea. You saw we were helpless, and you sent us a solution, your very self. And we honor you for that this morning. We thank you that God became flesh forever, transformed himself into a different nature so that he could have us. We thank you for that, Father. We thank you that not only have you done all of these things, but you also have given us the authority to make your enemies your footstool. And I pray that as we live each day in the purpose that you have designed for for us, whether big or small, that's exactly what we do. And this morning we want to give our money to you, hard-earned money. We want to give it to you because it's a sign of allegiance. We don't serve the God man, and we serve you. And so we ask Jesus that you receive our offerings and our tithes this morning and continue to guide us and show us how to use your money for your will. We thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. I forgot my checkbook.